So welcome. I'm Tom Morrison, the pastor of High Desert United Reformed Church. And we are having a presentation tonight entitled Calvinism, Truth or Fiction. So 30 minutes of our time will be presentation and 30 minutes of the time will be question and answer. And I hope to answer that question. Is Calvinism actually biblical or is it something that people have made up? And I'll I'll, uh, define Calvinism in just a minute, but I want to address motivations for being here. Uh, First, I think some may have come tonight because they're curious as to know what Calvinism is. I think some people may have come because they want to know more about Calvinism because they're suspicious of it. They think it's something unbiblical. And I think some may have come just because they want to know more about what a church believes. And I think all of those are good motivations. But what I think is common to each one of these motivations is really something behind the issue of Calvinism. And that is belief. Is your belief true or is it false? Is there a mixture of things within your belief system? And when we say belief, we're really asking, if, we're, if we have the presupposition that we're Christians, uh, we're asking ourselves, what, do, what does God require in this Bible? Who is God? So this is really an issue of correct belief, and not just an issue of what Calvinism is. It seems to me that it's very typical in Christianity today to believe in just a few chief things. So you'll hear people say, well, as long as you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus, if you accept Jesus into your heart, if you believe the Bible is true, if you avoid certain behaviors, if you do certain other behaviors, then it's safe to assume you're okay. Therefore, as the reasoning goes, you can go to just about any church and you're fine, as long as you have true biblical belief. In addition, the debate over these things like uh, Calvinism, people will think, is really just moving along the line of arrogance, and it's really not necessary. And in fact, oftentimes it can just confuse people. Well, we don't agree with this idea. In fact, we will argue that the Bible itself requires people to understand correct belief involving a coherent system of theology. So when we say that, theology is the study of God, we mean that there has to be consistency in our belief system. And also, your church should reflect that theological system. So when you look at all the scriptures, you'll see that there really is this coherent theology arising out of it. And we would say that a consistent theology focuses on Jesus Christ. The way I will argue for having a coherent system of belief, which should be reflected in your church, is to address the question of whether Calvinism is biblical or not. Is it truth? Is it fiction? Now, of course, it is impossible in one evening to demonstrate the truth of Calvinism, something we call the Reformed faith, from the scriptures. Therefore, the argument will just identify the issue of the correct definition of Calvinism and then be there will be a further appeal made to study the issue further. So we really can't cover all the bases this evening, but I think we can at least make an appeal and then cover some of the basic questions with the issue.
So I want to do three things. First, I want to do the history of our church. Second, I want to address misconceptions about Calvinism. And then third, what Reformed churches believe. So first, let me do a quick history of the church in just a few minutes. Actually, we believe that the church began in the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden. So after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised them the gospel. They believed it, and you have the first church, Adam and Eve. Then you have a development of the church over the New Testament that becomes more defined with the state of Israel, or the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. Of course, you go to the New Testament, you have the New Testament a church founded at Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God is poured out. And then you have Christianity spreading from Palestine, basically, in concentric circles to the whole world. So we're skipping centuries here, but as you move along within the first millennium, you'll see that there are a lot of debates over theology, the study of God. You know, what does the Bible actually say? Um, is there a trinity? If there is, what does it mean for Jesus to be God and man? These were the big questions early on. And so there were creeds written, such as the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. And later on, there were confessions written, written confessions like our own in the back table there, that helped to define these very important issues for people in the church. Well, many of these issues came to a head in the 1500s over the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification deals with the issue of how people, sinful people, can be accepted in the sight of a holy God. Well, in the 1500s, the medieval Roman Catholic Church believed that basically one could become holy. So if you prayed, if you asked for help, if you were serious, if you did penance, if you did different things, then you could become better and better and finally be accepted uh, before God. There are also popular conceptions of this. Well, the Protestant Reformation, where many of our churches come today, argued differently. In fact, the Reformed Church in particular argued that no, it's not us becoming better and better. Uh, That's not how we're accepted in the eyes of God. It can only be something that God does or God proclaims. So the the Reformed Church said, no, justification is God declaring people to be holy. And he can only declare a person holy if they believe in Jesus Christ alone, and their sin, the person's sin, is imputed or credited to Jesus Christ, and the righteousness of Christ, his perfect work, is credited or imputed to sinful people. So the key issue was, Grace, that a person is saved by grace alone. They're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But even the the bigger issue really was this issue of imputation. So a person had to be declared, accepted, only by God's declaration uh, through Christ. Where others were saying, no, a person becomes righteous personally in their heart. Now I'll distinguish what we mean uh, We do believe that a person can become personally holy. We call that sanctification, but we distinguish that from justification. So the real issue in the Protestant Reformation was this issue of justification. How are people accepted in the sight of a holy God? God is terrifying when you study him in the Bible. What do sinful people do with this God? Well, the Reformers said 
only by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And that was a key issue of justification, in particular the issue of imputation. God declares a person righteous through their faith alone because of what Christ did alone. While the Reformed churches in the 1500s developed and immigrants came to America, as you know, in the 1600s, and you had Reformed churches, and basically that's where our church comes from, is that stream from Europe where uh, the Reformers talked about this doctrine, worked it out, as well as other doctrines I'll address in just a moment. So our church is called the United Reformed Church uh, of North America, and it's a, f- a federation or a denomination of different churches, and we gather around creeds and confessions that I mentioned, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. We call those the three forms of unity. That's, those were written in Europe in the 1500s, the Canons of Dort in the 1600s, and when people came to America, they began Reformed churches that used those same creeds and confessions. So that's basically the history of the church. Now many people will say, what do you mean by creeds and confessions? How can you believe these things? Don't you believe in the Bible alone? Well, we believe in the Bible alone as our ultimate authority. But we believe that creeds and confessions are necessary because there are a lot of different opinions about what the Bible actually says. So you go back to these situations early on in church history and people are haggling over the Trinity, the nature of Christ, salvation, essential beliefs of the Bible. So many people read the Bible differently, hence the need for creeds and confessions. But we confess that the Bible is the ultimate authority. If the creed or confession is out of line, we change the creed or the confession. But also you'll notice that creeds and confessions force you to have a position. And we would argue also force you to think about church in a place to go to church where there is accountability. Okay, so that's the first section. I just wanted to quickly situate our church on the church history map. There's so much more to say, but I think it's unfair to try to get into more than that. Reformed churches come from Europe. They were formed really because of this uh, debate over justification, how we're saved before a holy God. Started in Europe and came to America. We have three confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. We also accept the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and Athanasian Creed. Okay, so misconceptions about Calvinism. Now, I, I don't know how many people here are familiar with Calvinism. I know that some of you are. But I think what's interesting about this term is that, in large measure, it's come about because of debates. You'll see live debates, recorded debates, radio debates, there are magazines, books, between people like the Arminians and the Calvinists, the Calvinists and Catholics, Calvinists and, and other folks. And some of these are very interesting, but I think they're usually poorly formulated because they just focus on a few uh, doctrines in the Bible. I'll explain. But first of all, let me define what people mean by Calvinism. In the 1500s, there was a pastor and theologian named John Calvin. He was French, but spent most of his life in Geneva, Switzerland, where he had a church there, 
and also an academy where he taught a lot of pastors. And Calvinists would say, well, we follow John Calvin. We think his theology is right. He wrote a, um, a work called The Institutes. He wrote many different commentaries and other books. And people have mined his writings and, and uh, have come up with Calvinism, his, his uh, take on the Bible. But also people will say that they believe in the five points of Calvinism. Which you hear also people saying, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist or a three-point Calvinist, and on the debate goes. Well, let me tell you what the five points of Calvinism are. Uh, Just because I think this is important, because this is what you hear when people say Calvinist. uh, The way to define it would be to use the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. So, as it goes, uh, these are the five points. T stands for total depravity. That is, all people are completely sinful. Their will, their mind, their heart. They're dead in their sins. They can't move toward God on their own. U stands for unconditional election. That is, God chooses some people, not conditioned on the person at all, but only because of his own design and will. He passes over others with his grace. L stands for limited atonement. That is, Christ was crucified, his blood was shed only for the elect, only for those God chose before the foundations of the world were laid. So his atonement, his his blood that was spilled, was only for the elect, only for God's children. I stands for irresistible grace. That is, the point is that People can be drawn to God, to Christ, only by the Holy Spirit. So once the Holy Spirit works in a person to regenerate him or her, that person will believe in Jesus necessarily. There's no doubt about it. Then finally, P stands for perseverance of the saints, which means that God will persevere a person to the very end. There's a, an up and downs in the Christian life, but God will nevertheless persevere a person to the very end until they get into heaven. Well, as I state these, that's, we would say that's correct. However, historically, the five points of Calvinism are called the doctrines of grace, or more properly, they're called the five heads of doctrine from the canons of Dort. Okay? So the five heads of doctrine from the canons of Dort. The progression in the canons is a little bit different. But suffice it to say, there was a a church meeting in the years 1618-1619 called the Synod of Dort, which is basically this big international church meeting. And there they were responding, really, to shots against the Reformed Church. So there were these people called the Arminians, And the church said, no, you're wrong. The Arminians were fighting with them. So they came up with this document called the Canons of Dort. This is very important because the Canons of Dort are a response document. So really, what people say the five points of Calvinism are, are a response to a church controversy. In other words, they're not a theological abstraction. They come from the soil of theological debate within the church. Now let me illustrate why this is important. Because people will say Calvinists or Reformed people are all about the five points. 
Well, that's sort of like saying if we had a controversy, say, this year in our churches over the Holy Spirit. Some people are saying he is not God or, or something like that. We would have to say, no, he is God and this is his person, his work. If we wrote a theological document and published it, it would be unfair for people to say, oh, well, Reformed churches are all about the Holy Spirit. Now, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We think he is God. He is essential. But we don't sort of define our churches by one person in the Godhead. We define our church by the Trinity, the whole, the whole Godhead. So that's why we sort of take issue when people say, well, Calvinists are the five points. That's not really fair. So that's the first point. That's what Calvinism is, typically, as it's defined, the, the five points, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Uh, but we respond by saying, well, uh, it really comes from the canons of Dort. It's within a church context, and people usually take it out of context. The second uh, response here to a misconception is that we call ourselves Calvinists. John Calvin, with whom we agree on many points, told his people, as historians will tell you, not to call yourselves Calvinists. You're not a Calvin follower, you're a Christ follower, you're a Christian. In fact, call yourselves Reformed. By which he meant, get back to the Bible. If there's a problem in the church, reform the church, change the church, bring the church back into accordance with what the scriptures say. This is also important because different types of churches will call themselves Reformed. You have this, it, it, it's, it's a wrong title, but Baptist churches will call themselves Reformed, like a Reformed Baptist church. Well, that's not even fair to, to uh, Baptists because they don't believe everything Reformed people believe. It's sort of like calling a church a Reformed Methodist church or a Reformed Catholic church. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't call a church a Methodist Catholic church. There's a confusion of terms. So labels are very important. If somebody says they're a Calvinist, they, they believe something very narrow about some doctrines. In fact, many uh, Baptists and others couldn't agree with all the canons of Dort. They're things that they're out of step with in terms of the canons. So that's very important. We call ourselves Reformed, not Calvinists, because we follow Christ and our authority is the Bible, not John Calvin, as much as we like him. Uh, third, uh, was my point about following one man. We don't. Uh, that would be an error. Again, this is in Calvin's writings. He, he says, be confessional. So we have the three forms of unity, not because we're three forms of unity followers, but because we're Bible followers. And we need a document to help us to stay on track. Fourth, uh, to some minds, uh, Calvinists suggest that we have a very narrow theology of the Bible. In other words, you look at the Bible, and there are a lot of different things going on, and you Calvinists are just picking one sort of part of that Bible and hammering it. Well, that may be true for some people, but Reformed churches don't do that. We believe that we should preach from all the scriptures, teach all the scriptures. We believe that theology comes from the scriptures. We don't import a theology on the scriptures. Fifth, Calvinists are intellectuals who think too much about the simple truths of scripture. They make it hard when it is easy to understand. Well, in one respect, we think the Bible is easy to understand. We believe that anybody can come to faith. Obviously, there are exceptions with people with extremely 
extremely low IQs. No points made here. <laughs> but on the whole, we think that people can come to faith. But we disagree with the fact that the Bible is an easy book. It, it should be translated from the Hebrew and the Greek. It should be when going through the process of preaching. One should do that process. There are many difficult scriptures. Peter says that about Paul. He says that his writings are very difficult. That's coming from another apostle. So there's a lot that goes into interpreting the scriptures. And the church and those who are in the academy have to put a lot of time and study into the Bible. But that's why there is a church. That's why God instituted a church to help people understand what the Bible actually says. So we disagree that Calvinists are just intellectuals. We think the Calvinists are trying to be careful with what God has given them. That is the Bible. Six, Calvinists talk about limited atonement and predestination all the time. Yes, Calvinists do that. Reformed people don't. We really think there's much more than just the five points of Calvinism. Again, the problem is some people making theology an abstraction, saying, this is what it is, let me paint it out for you. We've all met people like this who say, so you're a Calvinist or Reformed, what do you believe? And they hit them with predestination and limited atonement, and they make it this sort of attack or a shibboleth that if you don't believe in these certain points, then there's something wrong with you. We don't approach it that way. If somebody asks us what our church is all about, we talk about the Trinity, we talk about man's sin, we talk about Christ, we talk about salvation in Christ alone. Now, it involves some of these things, but we don't hit them with the five points right away. No, we must have clear categories and a clear system of belief. Seventh and finally, uh, some people would say, well, I've been to your church or other Reformed churches, and I think Reformed worship is boring. Well, no, we actually think that the approach that people take today to church and worship is wrong. Typically, and this just makes sense because we're human, we kind of think of a meeting, even if it's on Sunday, as something that should be uh, very accommodating, it should be comfortable, it should be immediate, it should be maybe something like a movie or a theater play or something like that. But we have to say, no, worship is first and foremost for God, and secondly, it is for the creature. But not the unredeemed creature, not, the, not for the creature or the person who's just checking things out. It has to be for the baptized. As one person says, preaching is to the baptized. But we say in the process that the church ministering to the saints, that is, Christians, people that are visiting, and we want visitors there that don't know Christ, they will hear and understand the gospel and what the Bible is all about in its perfect setting. Because that is how God has set things up. This is very hard for people today because they think, no, you have to accommodate uh, non-Christians. We would say, yes, insofar as we use language that's not theologically abstract or making it hard. We shouldn't do that. We want to welcome them, but preaching and teaching from the Bible, singing from the Bible, will have a certain vocabulary and context and form that we have to keep to because we're trying to, to please God. And it's not that hard. People can understand it. They can be taught. But that's a huge misconception, I think, that would be cleared up if actually churches focused on what they're supposed to do, and that is to ask God, what do you want? 
in your worship service. And if that's true, it has to look different. It has to feel different from anything else that you do in this life. And that's good. If you're struggling with something really hard, if you're in the process of grieving from a death, then you want something that's different. You want something that's transcendent. You want something that's heavy in terms of uh, theology and uh, the presence of God. Enough said there, so let me summarize. Uh, Many of the misconceptions about the Reformed belief come about because of this debate between Calvinists and others. And we would say many times it's just wrongly framed. We're not Calvinists. We are Reformed, which means we follow Christ according to what the Bible says as it is worked out in a true church. Therefore, the platform of many of those who call themselves Calvinists is fiction. That is, they focus only on some of what is right to the exclusion of the greater context. The particular aspects of Reformed theology of which Calvinism or Calvinists speak must be understood in a greater context that is the full biblical presentation. So that takes us to our last and final point. What do we actually believe? So we, we treat misconceptions, but what do Reformed people actually believe? Well, notice first of all we say, uh, we wish to say, Reformed churches, not Reformed theology, because again that can be abstracted away from the church. We think it's properly worked out in a church. We believe in one true God who is perfectly holy, good, merciful, and just. We know this God only through the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. And we believe the Bible is the full word of God. Every word in the Bible is God's word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We believe that there are no errors in the Bible. We believe that we can know God in the creation but only in a general way. People can only know God as judge, not as father. You can only know God as father from the Bible as it reveals Jesus Christ. So the Bible, we would say, is not just a moral moral document. It is a book about Jesus Christ. We believe that scriptures tell us about the Trinity, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power, and glory. We believe this God has created all things, and not only that, He sustains all things, which we call the doctrine of providence. So we believe there is not one thing that happens in this life that's a mistake or an accident. We believe God knows all things in the future, in the past. There's some today who would argue that God learns or is affected by the creation. We don't believe that. We believe God is in charge of all things, in control of all things, which gives us a lot of comfort. Everything is in his hand, as one song says. We believe that God created man good, that is Adam and Eve, uh, that they fell, that is they sinned against God by eating forbidden fruit, and they came under God's anger and his curse. And because Romans 5 says that Adam is the head of humanity, that all people are born with original sin. So this is not very popular, but we believe it's true. The Bible is very clear about this, that even an infant is sinful and deserves God's anger and wrath, even in the womb. This is uh, David's point in Psalm 51. It's all over the Bible, in fact. All of us are sinful because of Adam's sin. It's not God's fault. It's man's fault. 
But we believe in what's called the doctrine of predestination. That is, we believe that God does choose some people after the fall, or the fall as it's ordained by God, and he passes over other people with a saving grace. So it's called election, God choosing some people, and reprobation, God passing over other people with his grace. This is very clear in Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 8, if I didn't mention that already. Many, many different passages talk about the fact that God chooses some and passes over others. But, we believe that if God had not chosen anyone, he would have remained perfectly just. Because he told Adam and Eve in the garden, this is what would happen to you if you break the law, you will die. So he had every right to send them to hell right then. But because God is merciful, we believe that he has saved some. This is a very hard doctrine. And we don't pretend that it isn't hard. We also think it's mysterious. Why does God do this? We don't know why. Paul tells us he does this for his own glory. Uh, I think that's very important to add because many people will say, you know, believe it or get over it. Well, no. I think the scriptures treat it much differently. They, they say to treat this with great care and thoughtfulness. It, it's a hard doctrine, but it's also a doctrine we say that's one of comfort. And that's the point that the canons of Dort make. Is that you have belief, you are secure. No one, nothing can snatch you from Christ's hand. Also, I'll add that we believe it's a hidden decree. So, there are things about it we just can't know. It's God's command that he makes before the foundations of the world were laid. Okay, we um, believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ was spoken to Adam and Eve in the garden, as I mentioned, uh, right after they fell. Thus, God's final judgment was withheld as Christ, the second Adam, was promised. There was a first Adam, he blew it for humanity. There's a second Adam that comes along, according to Romans chapter 5, Jesus Christ, and for his own people, he bled and died. So he does what Adam can never do. In fact, the temptation story you read about in the Gospels is about the second Adam being tempted by the serpent again, but passing the test perfectly. So we say really the center of Reformed belief, I hope you take this away tonight, is that we believe in Jesus Christ, his person and his work. We believe Jesus Christ is fully God and he's fully man. We believe he fulfilled the law perfectly and was crucified for those who had faith in him. And so salvation is understood through Christ alone. A person, again, is saved only by God's grace, not by his or her works. Through faith, faith is not a work. It's only an instrument. In fact, it's a gift that God gives people, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And justification is the best way to talk about salvation. That it's God imputing your sin to Christ and imputing Christ's righteousness to you, received by faith alone. That is the good news of the gospel. There's nothing we can do, not anything. It's all, all is from God, everything he does through Christ. I mentioned sanctification. We believe that people do actually grow in their faith through this life. We believe it's very small and that until the day we die we will be sinners, but only in heaven will be, we be perfected or glorified. But in, in the meantime, by the Holy Spirit, we're made more and more like Jesus Christ. And we add that this must take place in a true church. We can't be Christians outside of the church or in a false church. 
So the Belgic Confession, Article 29, makes that distinction. It says that uh, true churches will preach the word of God rightly, will teach it rightly. It will administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper rightly. And third, it will carry out church discipline, which isn't just negative in terms of disciplining people when they're out of control, but also it's positive. It's taking care of the sheep. It's praying for people. It's visiting people in the hospital. It's doing anything we can do to take care of the flock of God. So the three marks must be true or apply to a church that would call itself true. And that's where you should be if you uh, are a Christian. Now, I'll add that we don't believe Reformed churches are the only true churches. We believe there are other true churches. Any church that exhibits these three marks is a true church. A couple more points. Uh, We believe in living in the world, but not of the world. Reformed people have a very developed um, idea of vocation. We think that people that work for the gas company or the funeral home or for the state, or if they're mothers, if they own a business, whatever they do has value before God. All those things we say, if somebody digs a ditch for the rest of their life and doesn't see a whole lot of people, that has value before God because they can do that work under the glory of God. And we believe the creation of the world belongs to God and all these different things are needed. So we give high value to all vocations, of course, that are legal. So, this is very important because many times people wish to retract from the world, but we think we should enter into the world fully. This is how we're salt and light. This is how we see people come to Christ, bringing them into the church. Uh, But we don't believe we should be of the world. That is, we have to be careful of uh, bad and evil influences. And finally, we do believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. We don't know the time or the hour, but we do believe that he is coming again. Okay, that's it. That's the maybe 34-minute presentation. So let me open it up for questions, and I'll just repeat the question into the uh, mic here. But let me especially encourage people that are visiting to ask questions. Any question is fair. Um, You may think, oh, this is too simple. It's not too simple. Any question you have, I would love to address. Or a point, or a a protest is fine, too. What's that? Yes. I was wondering if you could um, elaborate on the uh, reprobation part, make it a little bit more easier to understand. I mean, sure. It, it almost sounds mean, but if we, you know. Sure. The question is, could you clarify reprobation? When we talk about predestination, we always think of two sides. Predestination refers to God's decree or his command. So when we say that, this is something he does outside of the church. He does outside of anything else. This is his sole command that he has made in the the corridors of eternity. 
The positive part of predestination is called election. So, in God's mind, as it were, there's, he's working all this out, that there will be um, a human race, there will be Adam and Eve, there will be a fall. He's, he, he decrees after the fall that there will be some of those people that will be elect. He elects out of the fallen mass of humanity some people who would come to know him. Reprobation refers to the negative part. That is, that other people would be passed over by his grace. The confusion comes, and this is why we get a little nervous with these Calvinistic debates, is people will say, wrongly, reprobation is God choosing to damn some people. That's not what reprobation is. He doesn't have to do that. People, it's such a horrible word, but that's what we've talked about for centuries. People are damned. They are going to hell. They're under God's curse and anger simply by having original sin. So God doesn't have to choose anyone to be damned. They're, they're damned. They're born in Adam. So reprobation is really the part where we refer to people who will never come to faith. That is, God has not chosen them. I don't know if that clarifies it. So I think it's... Because it's, sometimes people mix up terms. You think of the one term, predestination, there are two parts. Election, that's God's positive choosing of the person. Reprobation is his passing over others with his grace. Follow-up question, or does that help? Or? at it. It's just a very hard doctrine. And there are churches today that don't talk about it, even though it's in their confession, or they ignore it, or write it out of their confessions. And you can see why. I mean, if you, say, if you're having a party called your church, and you want to have a lot of people come, don't talk about predestination. (laughs) It's not going to... But the thing is, and this is what's true of our churches, that if we're going to do church, we have to do it according to God's word. And uh, prede- predestination is hell is hard. Uh, but also, it, hell is very difficult to talk about. Even if you don't believe in predestination, you have to deal with the doctrine of hell. And that is why other churches have said, no, there is no hell. There are these people called the Universalists who say everybody will be saved. Or they say there's no hell. It's a metaphor in the scriptures. Or they talk about hell is really being uh, annihilation, that people will just be annihilated and not tortured, basically, for eternity. Again, nobody likes the doctrine, but they say it is in the Bible. Now, you know, using the word like, we can't say, I like this doctrine, I don't like that doctrine, but you know what I mean. It's, it's that the, they're just some very difficult doctrines, which actually, in many ways, bolsters the um, legitimacy of the Bible. If somebody's going to make up a religion, first you wouldn't have women finding Jesus on Resurrection Day because women were not regarded as faithful witnesses in court. Uh, you wouldn't make up a doctrine like hell 
I mean, there are lots of things, or predestination, you just wouldn't do those things. Other questions? What does free will in regards to justification come from? The question is, how does free will relate to justification? Well, where does people would come up with the idea that freedom of will, of our own will, would determine our justification or where we're going to go with it or not? Well, that's hard to answer because in the history of the church there are different ideas about the will, human will. But just to summarize it, to make it simple, there are people who have a qualified, or people that say the will is qualified, that would be reformed people say, and others who would say, no, the will, human will, is, is free, it's autonomous, it can choose to do anything, choose one, choose X as freely as they could choose Y, in terms of salvation, and we say no, the Bible says that our wills are actually in bondage to sin and death. This is Paul's point in Romans. Isn't that the first domino of Arminianism? In other words, total depravity. If you don't have it, you have the ability to choose. That would be part of the Arminian belief, absolutely. And then it goes on, and that's where it was just his inability... I don't know what Arminius... Who was his name? Van Herman? Hermanson? That sounds right. Jacob Arminius is the, I think, the Latinized yeah. version. But, you know, it's hard because there's Jacob Arminius who died and then his followers were at the, the Synod of Dort and they had a slightly different view than Arminius. And today you have different types of Arminians. So just like Reformed people don't like... Calvinist describing what the Reformed Church is, I'm hesitant to say you know, exactly what Arminians believe to be fair to them. So there's, there are very specific issues to which the canons dort, they're called the rejection sections after each head of doctrine. Mm-hmm. So because that was very specifically formulated. The United Methodists will have like the Arminian, Arminius treatise of, of, of the points, of his points. Mm-hmm. Right. As like first page, you know, they 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 like him a lot. <laughs> right, right. But to be fair, I won't I won't say this is Jacob Arminius or even his followers. But there's a general idea that people have that you know we're born into this world with free will. We can choose God or not choose God. And we, of course, there are problems with that when you talk about the deadness of sin. how grace works but suffice it to say reformed people say no our wills our moral wills are dead in terms of being able to choose God we can't Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our sins and transgressions you have a passage in Ezekiel where Ezekiel is called to preach to the dead bones to make the point that the word of God is powerful raising to life people that are dead there are many scriptures that talk about this idea of total depravity, that is, our will, our mind, our heart, everything, has no desire for God at all. We're haters of God, naturally, haters of our neighbors, so God has to make the first move, as it were. Then he enlightens our hearts, 
in our eyes so that our will is changed so that we will choose Him. Because of the free will, it seems like you can enter in and you can just as easily on the last, at the P, have to hop off. That would be one of the arguments against that idea of free will, that if you can choose your way in, you can choose your way out. Yeah, and it's a very um, scary proposition. Particularly right. when the chips are down. Yes, it's very uncomfortable. I'm sure that there's times where people were facing, you know, certain or near death. And, uh, sure. It's not a good doctrine to have. No, it's not. And we th- again, that's why the canons of Dort have been described as a book of comfort, because it talks about election. Election's a wonderful doctrine. Why we find it mysterious and. Calvin called it terrible because it's this very difficult thing. At the same time, it's very comforting because we're really dealing with a God who's in control. And that's what we need. We need a God who's in control, not us. Look what we've done <laughs> you know, in our history. We, we need God to be in control, not us. Yes? I grew up um, believing in like prevenient grace that God knew... The way I kind of worked it out in my mind was that God knew that I would choose Him. I guess is the best way of putting it, and that that was my idea of uh, predestination. It was foreknowledge, but I don't think that's the right definition of foreknowledge. But could you could comment on that? Sure. What's that called? Prevenient grace. Prevenient. Mm-hmm. Right. The the question is, how do you think about some people who have said there's such a thing as prevenient grace, and how does that relate to this idea of foreknowledge? Well, the idea is it's grace that goes before. So the, I'm generalizing here, the, the, the general Arminian would say, we have free will, we realize that we're really sort of hamstrung by our sin, and so they come, they come up with this idea of prevenient grace, it's nowhere in the Bible, but it's this general grace that goes out to all, enough where a person is enabled to choose God. They, they really choose God first. God doesn't need to choose them first. They make the first move. And some people related to that will say, Romans 8, Paul says that those God foreknew, he also predestined. They'll say, well, there it's talking about, or Paul is talking about the fact that he knows that people will make this choice because of prevenient grace or whatever. They make the first move. Then on that basis, he chooses them. But the Greek word there is proskunosko, and it does not mean that. And this is one of those easy words, actually, where if you look up any Greek lexicon, the best ones, a dictionary, a Greek dictionary, will tell you. It means to choose beforehand. It will clear it up for you, and especially in that context, Paul is saying, in a very full way, God has chosen you beforehand, he predestined, he knew you beforehand. There's no way you can say from those verses and others like it that God looked down time and knew you would make a choice and then on that basis chose you. It's almost deist, isn't it? I guess it could be. You could like leave the room, decide to leave you know, the area. Sure. Or some people, you know, some people will say, well, does God choose everyone? Well, no. Because what does it mean to choose them. Why is Paul making these points in Romans 8, 9, 11, 
Acts 13. I mean, all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. And why is there hell? I mean, if you say that there's God shows everyone, you're left with this universal, universalistic position. It's like a rat race. It could be. Does that answer your question? Yeah. With all, uh, with all that said about choosing and all how if you can could you explain then the misnomer of uh, fatalism as far as um, the great commission and um, preaching the gospel to every man well that's a great question the question is if what we say about election is true that God chooses some others are passed over with his grace how do we think about the great commission that is the, the bring the gospel to the world is that accurate well, actually, many would argue that the fact that we believe in election gives us a stronger uh, motive for preaching the gospel because we know that there are elect people all over the place. They're all over the world. In fact, one of the, the uh, charges against Reformed people is that, well, how can you say that, the, that there is uh, election or limited atonement because there or all these passages that talk about for God so loved the world. Um, there's a passage, First John 2, he's a propitiation or a covering for us, not only our sins, but the sins of the world. But if you look at these passages in their context, you'll see that what the apostles are doing is saying that it's not only just for the Jews or just for the little children of John and First John, but it is for the world as in those elect scattered all over the world. They don't have to use the word elect to say that they're talking about specific people all over the world. Another very interesting thing is, if you read the Gospel of John, you'll notice that he plays with this tension. He'll say, preach the Gospel to every creature. Uh, all of you come to faith. Jesus is speaking to everybody. He's not just going to one person here or there. Yet in John 6.44, he says that only those that the Father draws to me will come to me. Uh, he makes very specific uh, references to election, uh, that only those the Father gives me will come to me, John 6.37. So all those are balanced to say, the church has this imperative to go out to every creature and preach the gospel like crazy. And we know and believe that God will use that word to bring people to himself. It isn't sort of up for grabs. Can we make a really good argument? Can I be really smart? Can I be super pastor, super professor, super lay evangelist or whatever? Maybe I can argue this person in the kingdom of God. No, you can't. I can give the best arguments in the world, but unless God works in that person's heart, they will not come to faith. So in answer to your question, it makes us work harder because we know God, first of all, has commanded us to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching everything that Christ had taught the first apostles and disciples. That's a command. We can't haggle with a command of God. But secondly, we know that uh, the church's ministry will be efficacious. It will work. We'll actually see people come to faith because they've been appointed to eternal life. As we hear in Acts 13. Other questions? Debate? <laughs>
Back to Calvinism. Yes. <laughs> so you are saying that Calvinism is, or the five points of Calvinism, are only a small part of your overall theology. You're not a Calvinist, you're reformed, but you uh, believe that those things faithfully uh, interpret that part of your theology. Yes. Yes, so the, the question is, while we say that what we call the five points of Calvinism, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, as being, if some people say they just believe that, and we respond by saying that's only part of it, we're not denying those things at all. In fact, the way I explained it to you, with the uh, TULIP acronym, we would say is pretty accurate. But, you know, there's a lot more to talk about for one, and people confuse the issues. And secondly, it does come into a greater context. Church, the idea of the end times. I mean, there's so many different things that need to be discussed. Can you explain imputation? Uh, The question is, what is imputation again? It is a uh, term which is really a part of the essence of the doctrine of justification. The issue with the doctrine of justification is how are sinful people, dead in their sins, uh, who have incurred God's anger and curse, how are they accepted in the sight of a holy God? How are they just? How are they, how are they accounted righteous? We could use the term, imputation is a, a term in the scriptures, Paul uses it in Romans, And it refers to the crediting of some person's account. I just changed definitions there. So let me say, uh, imputation is really a legal term. So if you think of a courtroom situation, if a person is standing before the judge guilty, if they say, yes, I am guilty, and the judge slams down the gavel, all of a sudden says, not only are your uh, crimes taken away, but you're counted now as a perfectly upstanding citizen, not only now, but forevermore, that's the idea of imputation. Even if the person says, well, no, you don't understand, I murdered 12 people, I've been a terrible citizen, the gavel slammed down. Judge says, that's not counted against you, one. And secondly, you're counted now as being the perfect citizen forever. When the judge slams down the gavel, it's decided. That's it. That's imputation. It's God saying to you, I've, I slammed down my cosmic gavel. I've, I do not count sins against you because your sins have been imputed to Jesus, not given to him personally, but legally accounted to him. And I impute his righteousness, his doing the law perfectly, obeying the Father perfectly. I impute that to you. Another way to say it would be using economic terms, accounting terms, your account is credited with righteousness. You're not, you're not you know, counted against in terms of your debts anymore. You're credited with an infinite amount of money. So it's a legal declaration. That's the way to think about imputation. Now, the wrong way to talk about it, we would say, uh, is, it's a Roman Catholic term, is infusion. We don't think that grace is infused into us. So... It isn't like I'm having a really bad day, I've sinned a lot, and I can drink a glass of grace. 
or that I'm saved because I drank enough grace into my body. It's not a heart issue in terms of personal grace. It's what God says about us, declares about us, and received through faith alone. So if somebody has true faith, that they say, I believe Jesus bled for me, I believe in his righteousness, I trust in him, that's true faith, and we say that person is justified. God has declared them to be perfectly righteous. It is a hard term. I mean, sometimes you wish you could make it easier, but it, some terms are just necessary to, to get the full import of the idea, and it, it, it is a, a biblical term. Well, isn't like an, an infusion system? Be like baptism would be your first infusion. That's the Roman Catholic idea. Yes, you're, you're justified when you are baptized. You have all this grace poured into you. And then you're saved. Then it leaks out over time. Like 11 and 12 sacraments. Seven sacraments, typically, yeah. And, and they have like um, the, the first communion. And the first, right. And then there's the being into the church. You know, being, being a membership. But it, it's constant. I guess it's constant with... with with, um, right, and when you blow it, you go to confession, confession yeah. and doing these different things, saying the rosary. Yeah, they're not really very biblical, or they're not Bible-oriented. Activities. Well, actually, sometimes they are. You know, Catholics are very Bible-oriented. They just this is the point about creeds and confessions. We they interpret it much differently, and there are very fine Catholic scholars who would just. They could pick up the Bible, never touch their catechism or creed, and just run circles around us in terms of knowing the Bible. But the difference is they have a different interpretation of it. You have very fine scholars who know the languages, they know the history, but it's just a, it's a difference in interpretation. And that's, again, why we have to have these creeds and confessions, and they're tested over time. Where The Synod of Dort was the most international meeting of... Uh, these different Protestant churches at the time, over two years, you had hundreds of theologians coming together to work this stuff out. So not, it's not like one guy coming it's like together. Sola, like sola Scriptura would be more classically Protestant term, <coughs> scripture only. And there's, there's a cathedra. Ex cathedra, the, the Pope speaking something in absolute well, way from... There's a term in which it's it's, there's a church or element in it on the Roman Catholics. Right. Well, again, historically, the Catholics have had something like sola scriptura. That means scriptures alone. There are different traditions within the Catholic Church. One sounds a lot like us. The other tradition within the Catholic Church sounds a lot like what we think it is today. They're sort of the church and scripture on the same level. Right. So to be fair... There's another tradition within the Catholic Church, an earlier one, where it sounds pretty much like what we're saying. Okay. Any other questions? After I turn this off, we can ask more questions, too. <laughs> okay, I'll pause there, and we can continue on after we stop the recorder, if you would like.